I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome our new climate fellow, Zainab Shukar, to the first of what I hope will be many episodes where we talk about her new climate research that she's spearheading at Century. Zainab, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Thanasi, for having me. So today we're going to talk about uh, your, uh, I think, first foray in a project that that you're leading here uh, that's trying to help us uh, uh, think more clearly about the dimensions and elements of the climate crisis in Iraq and and the wider region and and the whole world, uh, building on on the example of Iraq uh, to to see what we can do and learn about how to face uh, climate change everywhere. Uh, And uh, you've done, I mean, you you are a sociologist, you've done so much uh, field work and research over a long period of time on really all dimensions of, uh, of the climate crisis. Uh, and in this, in this project, uh, explain, uh, explain if you can, in a sort of, uh, like a, from a 30,000 foot view, what it is you're hoping, or we're hoping to accomplish here over the next year plus, uh, as we take on the question of climate in Iraq and, and its neighborhood. Um, so yeah, I, I've been working on this um, question of climate for a while now. Um, originally, my sort of my interest into uh, studying Iraq, I mean, I am originally from Iraq, and my interest in studying Iraq was looking at the oil sector and how, you know, the energy sector specifically impacts Iraq political stability, social stability, the social contract between the state and citizens and so on. And from there, the second question that I became interested in is like now we know that climate is a thing and it's impacting the region how climate and iraq's oil dependency are going to interact with each other um and is iraq equipped and ready to be able to make that transition toward cleaner energy and away from sort of the oil sector as the rest of you know the world make that transition um and then once i started looking at it i realized that you know we are talking way uh you know in the future with the oil with the you know energy transition um in fact iraq is highly vulnerable to climate change before we even talk about diversifying the economy we have to talk about things like having access to clean water having water in the first place for people to be able to drink water and you know farm and fish and stay in their communities uh, we are talking about very severe sand and dust storms that sending people to the hospitals. We are talking about very extreme temperatures that is impacting not only livelihood, but also impacting the process of producing oil and transporting oil. So we are talking about very highly vulnerable country um, to many things. Um, climate change is one of them, but also the environmental degradation aspect of it, which is happening within sort of within Iraq. And so my hope now that I've seen how complex the issue is and and as someone who kind of came from outside the climate science and sort of the environmental sociology into it, um, not realizing how deep the process is and how deep the problem is, the goal is to be able to break it down, um, to highlight where the structural limitations are, to highlight where the problems are, to highlight how people are impacted, to focus on people, uh, to focus on people's needs, on communities' needs, and to be able to find solutions, not only short-term solutions that tend to be the focus of a lot of sort of NGOs, a lot of sort of international support and so on, like, you know, let's 
build this facility, let's update this infrastructure, but also to think of long-term solutions in terms of sort of the state itself and how political actors are engaging with the conversation of climate and how citizens are talking about climate um, in order to have a more sustainable, long-term sort of plan to address Iraq's many layer of environmental, political, and economic, as well as social instability. Yeah, it's 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 daunting and fantastic that that you're uh, uh, able and willing to take this on. the The sense I have as as an observer of not just the 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 problem, but all, but the sort of policy response to the problem is that you know for a long time there was this uh, people sounding the alarm, the sense of of multiple interrelated crises, a sort of you know a thicket a thicket of emergency, so to speak, um, and suddenly. I think a few years ago, there was a tipping point where suddenly everyone I was encountering was acknowledging that, oh my God, cli- climate climate change is, a, is 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 real. It's a big deal, and it's especially uh, it's especially pronounced in Iraq. These the emergency has already arrived. We're in the we're in the dystopian climate future already. So it, it and it sort of happened all at once, as far from, from from my vantage point, where it was like a discussion, and suddenly it was like okay, a consensus. And now that we have this consensus is that, okay, it is a big deal. Yes, it matters. Yes, it affects millions and millions of people and it affects geostrategic interests. You know, it, it affects things that everyone agrees are important. So now that we have this consensus, what do, how do we start to think about this in a useful and usable way? Uh, and, uh, and it seems that what's to me, what's so, uh, uh, useful and, 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 and sort of, productive about your approach is that you're focused on not just human impact, but human causes. Uh, so that in this thicket of, of overlapping crises, we will eventually, I, I think after several cycles of, of, of work that you're doing, come away with a sense of what human decision makers have wrought and what human decision makers could uh, reverse or repair or mitigate or adapt to so that we stop thinking about this as a sort of, you know, the weather, the sort of boundary conditions. And we start thinking about it more as direct uh, uh, cascading policy decisions that have, you know, policy consequences that can, can be addressed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in the case of Iraq specifically, you notice that, um, you know, you just mentioned how that typical point happened a couple of years ago where, and it's absolutely true, when it kind of stopped from being this like climate thing that's happening in an abstract term to people and other folks to more immediate things that are happening around us, right? You see wildfires right next to your home. You are, you have to ration your water usage. You are experiencing increasing temperatures. You are seeing sort of the impact of climate in terms of hurricanes, et cetera. And so it became not this sort of abstract idea, but this very tangible threat to your home, to your house, your family that you have to deal with, you have to run away from. Um, And so others start engaging in it, not only scientists, but also people start sort of looking at it and seeing it and also wanting solutions to sort of deal with this sort of emerging problem. Um, In the case of Iraq, and, and this is something that's been going on way before that tipping point in terms of dealing with these threats and these crises. Um, you know, the example that I often use is uh, sort of Saddam Hussein drying the marshland in the 1990s and southern Iraq as sort of a punishment for sort of Shia rebellion um, in, in um 
the southern part of the country. And so that is an example of sort of destroying one of the largest sort of ecosystems in the Middle East and globally, and sort of the human impact of that. Many, many thousands of people were forced to migrate, were displaced uh, internally into camps. Many of them were forced to, fl- to flee to Iran. And so that that aspect, that sort of very tangible impact of environmental degradation specifically, um, has been something part of the Iraqi story for a very long time. Um, and even though it is, and now it's becoming worse and worse, the reality is while people are experiencing these things and talking about them, governmental officials or political elites are not really engaging in these conversations until recently. In reality, we haven't seen a lot of sort of engagement from um, sort of leadership till maybe the previous administration and this administration more. Um, and that is an example of how sort of ignoring the problem, not addressing the problem, not having any solutions, or at least naming the problem has contributed to making the situation worse and worse to the population. And that's why kind of talking about it in terms that's not just abstract or highly scientific. So the politician, the average person can also engage in this conversation because they're part of it will be very important, very essential because the clock is ticking for Iraq and its neighbors. Um, Climate is not going to be only an Iraq problem. It's going to it is a regional problem and a problem in Iraq. It's not going to be limited to its border. It's going to be impacting other countries that are already dealing with their own problems, whether Turkey or Iran. And so it's really important to kind of take something abstract like climate and turn it into something tangible and kind of having language around it and engaging in conversation between sort of the average person, the academic, the policymaker and the politician. So you trace a very uh, a kind of uh, it, it. It's a bit of a of a enraging read uh, to 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 trace this history you tell. So you 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 don't go back hundreds of years. You go back you know some some decades. Uh, so tell us tell us what is what is the confluence of. Uh, mismanagement and state erosion uh, before 2003 that that created a lot of the conditions of environmental degradation and water mismanagement that then made climate change so much more rapidly uh, uh, destructive uh, to to Iraq. So we can, you know, we can go back specifically sort of to the 1980s and beyond and think of the 1980s as like a, a very critical moment. Um, and really, even before the 1980s, like if we think of oil dependency or Iraq's dependency on the oil on oil sector, um, oil has been a very important part of Iraq's economic system. In the 1970s specifically, it became even more significant because oil was nationalized. Oil prices experienced a very large uh, price boom in the 70s. So it created this very sort of rentier model, this uh, rentier state model where the state um, have access to all this oil wealth and create the social contract between the state and citizens, where citizens work in the public sector, have access to free health care, free education and so on, as long as they are not willing or like not planning to kind of rebel against the government or demand anything else. So it created this very, very sort of parasitic relationship between the state and citizens, oil for comfort. Meaning that 
you know, political elites, specifically Saddam Hussein and his inner circle, were not interested into engaging in anything else and to diversifying the economy and to thinking of other sort of ways to add to the revenues of the state other than oil. First of all, that's that will be a threat because uh, you're going to have a new economic elite, a new social class that will be economically uh, well and that can challenge the political system. So you don't want that. You want to monopolize resources. Um, also, why would you even do anything? Because you have all this money coming through and it's really stabilizing the country and no one is complaining or, you know, most people are not complaining. There was always complaints, uh, you know, whether the 60s, 70s and before that. But then the 1980s happened, and that was a very critical moment because the Iraq-Iran war happened. It lasted for eight years, and meaning that Iraq took a lot of these resources that for a while provided some comfort to the population, and it went to world war efforts, right? So it was to kind of continue to weaponize the society and so on meaning a lot of the infrastructure were neglected and left behind. And then we get to the 1990s, um, Saddam invades Kuwait, that goes really badly. Um, the U.S. bombs Iraq. Um, there was sort of targeting oftentimes of infrastructure within Iraq, water infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, and so on by allies. Um, of course, Iraq doesn't have the capacity to rebuild that infrastructure, so without international support, but the economic sanctions happened. So a lot of the infrastructure were highly outdated, destroyed, not up to standards. During the 1990s as well, like I mentioned earlier, some Shia rebels um, wanted to rebel against Saddam Hussein's regime. That did not go as planned. Many of them ended up going to or like hiding in the marshland in southern Iraq, um, known as the Garden of Eden. Earlier civilizations happened there and I'm, people I'm, lived all this. I just yeah. I just want to note that 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 rebellion was encouraged by the, the U.S. government in the aftermath of the Kuwait Absolutely. war. And then those uh, the Shia rebels were sort of hung out to dry, unlike the Kurds in the north who enjoyed some U.S. protection. So mm -hmm. I just I just like to flag uh, U.S. Uh, yeah. involvement, misjudgments, culpability mm -hmm. in some of these missteps, lest lest that gets uh, forgotten <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as we tell Absolutely. the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is it is both Saddam sort of drying the marshland, impacting sort of the environment and the people living there, but as well as international actors, right? Bombing infrastructure, uh, you know, saying we're going to support rebels and not supporting them and so on. Um, so, you know, using weapons, leaving, you know, leaving weapons on the ground and so on. So it was sort of a combination of multiple actors, Saddam, other actors like the U.S. kind of coming together into really creating this really horrifying space for the environment, for infrastructure that can maintain the environment and so on. So in 2003, and of course, during the 19s, 1990s, uh, we are talking about no access to updated infrastructure. We are talking about um, sort of uh, water uh, resources and so on that have been left behind, not updated, really outdated irrigation systems and so on. Um, so when 2003 hits, we are talking here about sort of another layer or another sort of shock to the system. Um, at that point, we're also talking about, again, bombing of infrastructure. We are talking about uh, sort of weapons and, and uh, you know, that left next to water resources. 
um, you know, burning of like homes, of tires, of so on. All of this contributed negatively to the environment. So this is just before 2003. So climate is something that impacts every country. Uh, but conditions within the country, like multiple wars, like targeting a very critical infrastructure, like uh, drying very important ecosystems, like, uh, you know, displacing people out of their homeland, um, like not investing in uh, updated irrigation systems or investing in the agriculture sector in the first place. All of this have really put Iraq in a really bad position by 2003. And of course, 2003 happens and new events start emerging now with ISIS, with further ignoring of, of the, the agriculture sector and so on. So it was sort of a storm in the making for a while before 2003 that really um, shaped or put the country on the wrong path. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International, and I'm talking to Zainab Shuket, who's our new climate fellow, who's leading this really interesting work uh, on the climate crisis in Iraq and its implications for uh, climate everywhere. Uh, we'll continue the conversation after a short break. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. Today, I am uh, have the pleasure of talking to Zainab Shuked about her climate work. Uh, you can read a report at Century's website, uh, tcf.org, that uh, contains a lot of the findings that uh, we're talking about here today. Just before the break, uh, Zainab, you were talking about the sort of uh, uh, storm in the making, uh, the, the conditions that uh, set the desultory stage uh, for the 2000s. And uh, what what I heard was a sort of perfect storm of uh, conflict and the destruction it causes, international intervention, uh, and then uh, sort of domestically inside Iraq, authoritarian uh, misgovernance and state erosion. Uh, so all these factors are uh, contributing to a whole bunch, a whole host of problems which you... Which you uh, uh, so eloquently cataloged, uh, and at this point uh, we get to the to the early two thousands or the mid two thousand. Uh, what do we call the that deck that first decade of this uh, century? Anyway, after the U.S. occupation, we enter this period where all these conditions you described have accelerated, and then at the say at that moment, uh, climate and climate aggravated water shortages start to uh, uh, really take momentum. So uh, what's, tell us, paint a little bit of the picture of, of how this, this climate or climate induced drought uh, or, or however, however you want to characterize these multiple overlapping climate and environmental uh, crises that have hobbled, you, you know, everything from agriculture to the breathability of air or the, the, the inhabitability of entire zones of Iraq. Yeah, so 2003 comes and we are talking about sort of the same issues from the past now um, transferred to a new regime type, but a regime type that lacks institutions, 
and lack uh, capacity and lacks the bureaucracy to address any of these problems. And now it has a new host of problems, right? You have a new war in 2003 that happened um, that um, further impacted infrastructure, for, further displaced people and further impacted the environment. Um, and none of the political actors or, you know, to be fair, most of the political actors were not sort of prioritizing the environment in any way. Uh, we are talking about building a state from scratch. We are talking about building a regime type from nothing. Um, and so the priority was to do that, to uh, control and ensure their security, to make sure there are no rebels, to ensure debathification will go well, uh, to ensure that Saddam and his allies will be captured. So the, the prioritization was specifically for security issues, for political issues, for economic issues, but never for the environment. Meanwhile, the environment itself was degrading because these are further threats uh, to already existing problems. And so these new political elites kind of maintain that one-tier system, that one-tier structure. Now, instead of having one authoritarian sort of leadership that um, sort of control oil resources and um, can use it for their interests and for stabilizing the country, now we have multiple actors, sort of multiple states within the state, also using oil resources to kind of funnel and fund their survival as actors within the state. That include surviving in the political system, funding uh, militias, funding ideological creation tools, and so on, meaning they were even less interested into investing in diversifying the economy, into uh, sort of engaging in updating the infrastructure. Um, the country was highly corrupt. So even if, and it continued to be highly corrupt today, even if there were projects, a lot of these projects will be delayed, will never come to light, will never exist. Negotiations will take years uh, to be done. So it became even, even more of a problem. Now it's a bureaucratic problem. Now it's a corruption problem. And now it's uh, sort of groups of people with a lot of political power, a lot of resources, highly, highly not interested into sort of fixing the environment or addressing the threat in front of them. Of course, the other threat at the same time that's happening is ISIS. And so ISIS really used sort of the environment and targeting the environment as a very important weapon uh, for in its arsenal. Um, a lot of times ISIS will, for example, and a lot of leadership within, within the group will uh, bomb, for example, oil pipes, will target some oil refineries and so on um, in order to have access to this, this resource, really expensive resource, meaning the environment around the pipe, around the refinery will be polluted. Um, ISIS, for example, will go to villages, will cut trees, will burn the trees, will burn forests, will burn uh, you know, farms as a form of revenge. So that is highly limiting green spaces and destroying the land and the agriculture for that community. When ISIS eventually was withdrawing and was defeated, in their withdrawal, they will continue to destroy everything in, in their way. They will. Um, they destroyed several oil refineries. They destroyed other sort of uh, farms and so on. Uh, creating what's known as sort of the ISIS winter eventually, where the sky was so filled with uh, dark smoke that people for a very long time couldn't even see the sun. And till this day, the impact of that pollution is felt on the ground um, till, till this moment. And so now 
And instead of only having international actors like the U.S. and so on uh, and, and the government, now you have the government, international actors and these organizations, these terrorist organizations, all contributing into destroying a further degraded environment. Keep in mind that when we are talking about environmental degradation in Iraq and we are talking about the climate change in Iraq, we're also talking about climate threats to Iraq's neighbor, whether it's Turkey or Iran. Um, the Tigris and the Euphrates uh, represent about 98% of, like, uh, you know, water for Iraq. Uh, so Iraq depends on 98% of its water comes from the two rivers. Uh, both rivers come from Turkey and pass through Syria and then arrive to Iraq. Turkey has been dealing with its own water problem. So since the 1970s, is building dams to, uh, you know, um, keep some water for itself. Um, in the last summer and the summers before that, they were experiencing highly water uh, stress situation, meaning less and less water was coming to Iraq. In Syria itself, so after the two rivers leave Turkey, arrive to Syria, um, Syria has been experiencing its own instability and its own bad management, its own infrastructure, outdated infrastructure. Um, so by the time the water comes to Iraq, it shrinks, it's already polluted, it's already limited. And by the time it goes down to southern Iraq, it's almost like most of the water is highly, highly polluted, a high level of salt. Really, there's, you know, no spaces to kind of uh, clean it or a lot of the industrial, medical and even oil uh, waste are completely dumped directly into their two rivers. So, again, infrastructure problems and actors around the country and the role of political elites within Iraq all contributing to creating this really horrible space uh, for the environment and water became sort of the first victim, the first obvious problem uh, that people are dealing with um, because it is sort of the easiest one to, uh, it's it's the, the main one that sort of both countries, whether Turkey, Syria or Iran or Iraq need, is sort of the first one that's been targeted and it's the most obvious one for Iraqis on the ground, for communities on the ground, because they need that water for irrigation, to uh, keep their livestock uh, alive, to be able to drink water, to be able to survive. You so very literally, you, you very literally see it in the fallen level yeah. of water in the rivers and in the in you know the the Gulf pushing, I mean, salty water from the Gulf pushing further and further upstream. And I guess entire areas of the South of Iraq that used to be verdant and agri ag viable agricultural areas now as dead land with, with cr visible crusts of salt on them. Right. So there's like a sort of Holocaust of, of the earth that is vast and very visible uh, as the, as the leading edge of uh, a manifestation of this crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is that, I mean, I know this is not the focus of our conversation today, but I'm, you know, so you've, you've made clear, and I think this is an important point that, that infrastructure destruction is much more persistent than maybe people would expect. You know, you bomb uh, uh, the electricity grid in the, in the eighties or nineties and 30 years later, it still hasn't recovered. Um, and, uh, and then secondarily, you're talking about the impoverishment of land, whether it's, you know, as a result of pollution or the fire set by ISIS or salinity or water mismanagement. And I'm curious, do, do, do we, should we understand this, uh, sort of dust bowl or, or this, this, the sort of killing of earth as a 
reversible phenomenon or is this like, is this something that we should understand as sort of permanent and, and these areas are, are just no longer going to be inhabitable? I think it's reversible um, based on all the reports that I'm reading, based on a lot of the data that's emerging. Um, it could be done. You know, we saw that with the marshland, for example. Like I mentioned, it was dried by Saddam Hussein in the 1990s. And then a lot of efforts happened and the, the area was reflooded. And a lot of sort of the existing sort of ecosystem reemerged. A lot of the, the birds came back, the fishes came back, uh, the people came back. And it became uh, sort of this one success story, right? This this really um, visible, important success story, not only for the environment, for the, but for the people of sort of the good things that happened post-2003. Um, speaking of the marshland, right now it's drying up again. So a lot of that effort, it's, it's gone to waste because of, again, this sort of structural limitations, infrastructure issues and so on. But it is doable. Um, the water is still coming down from, you know, Turkey. And, um, you know, if Iraq and Turkey can negotiate effectively water access, then more water can come to Iraq. If Iraq can invest into its infrastructure, then it can clean the water and limit the sort of how much waste is being dumped into the rivers. Um, if there is more investment into updating irrigation systems, the land can thrive again and people can come back to their land. We are seeing examples of that, for example, in places like Najaf and Karbala, where sort of, uh, you know, religious institutions there have been spearheaded, spearheading the, the process of updating and modernizing irrigation systems in that region. And they've been fairly successful in it. And so it's doable. Um, as long as there are efforts, as long as there are clear sort of short-term goals in terms of like updating specific infrastructure, but also long-term goals in terms of addressing the fundamental problems of undiversified economies, of corruption, and so on, that can really create a space for more um, sort of efforts into addressing not only the water shortage, but addressing, for example, clean energy, um, addressing the extreme heat, addressing sand and dust storms, and so on, which involve multiple sort of long-term and short-term steps. I mean, the 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 work you've done and and the work of of, of others uh, paints an apocalyptic picture of uh, living conditions for especially poor people in Iraq, and and this is. For me, uh, one of the really striking and important factors to keep in mind, right, is that uh, these are hum either human-caused or human-exacerbated consequences of both climate change and environmental degradation, and they cause the, these these poor choices cause widespread misery uh, that impacts uh, the communities two ways. One, it makes uh, it makes life unlivable very literally for poor farmers, folks uh, uh, who are living in the vicinity of highly polluting uh, oil industry in Southern Iraq, uh, uh, people who lived in the marshes. And then it also affects everyone more widely because of uh, a, a variety of things from the, you know, a country that used to be able to feed itself, having to import all its food because agriculture has collapsed, uh, energy use skyrocketing because people have to be indoors with the air conditioning on, literally if they want to survive in summers that routinely have temperatures of 120 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, along with unbreathable dust in the air and, and conditions that are just not suitable for human life. Um, so this, this picture, you know, on the one hand, it, it 
gives an apocalyptic impression. And on the other hand, what I hear you saying is, Hey, this isn't like a disaster movie. (laughs) This is, this is the consequence of poor policy choices that can be reversed. Right? So like, you know, it's not like, well, we got to move to high ground guys. It's, Hey, this is now a crisis where people can't live. We need to fix it because literally your constituents are are otherwise going to have to move to Baghdad and then maybe even further North because they physically won't be able to survive in the areas where they've been living for 5,000 years of recorded history and, and clearly much longer than that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and I think that's why in the first place I was interested in the question of climate change. Um, and I continue to write about it, even though it is a highly depressing topic, but, um, it is not just describing a problem. It's, um, describing a problem to be able to find the solutions, addressing specifically where the limitations are, where are sort of the critical moments are, the critical points are, to be able to address these points in different layers and different ways so we can slow down the impact of climate change. Um, of course, to keep in mind, climate change is something that's not only impacting Iraq. So uh, changes in Iraq alone is not going to change climate change globally. It's not going to protect Iraq completely from climate change. But we are talking about increasing sort of the, res- the, the ability of Iraq to respond to climate issues, increasing the ability of Iraq to sustain itself uh, long term. Um, so when climate worsens for everyone, uh, if no steps are taken on a global level, Level, specifically by the worst offenders, um, you know, a country like Iraq has the capacity to maintain the well-being of its people, to maintain its political and economic stability. And because the problem is so uh, wide range, so different, so multi-layered, the reality is you can tackle it from any direction and you still will be making progress. Um, you know, you can uh, invest in one infrastructure and it still will improve the life of the people, at least in that town, in that village. Um, and you can work on long-term solutions and that will be long-term sort of a wide range solution for everyone. But there is hope and there are solutions. It's just a question of interest and question of uh, sort of... Uh, investment, not only from international actors, but by political elites, as well as by the people on the ground and their sort of commitment to this question of environmental consciousness and uh, solutions. And we're going to be learning a lot more about this over the years to come from uh, your work and the and the work of your colleagues. Uh, Iraq's case, I think, really spotlights how governance conflict, state capacity, and corruption uh, play a distinct role. Um, and, and by studying Iraq, it allows us to see how those uh, those vectors interact with 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 climate and with with other things as well to create misery, uh, reversible uh, misery. And I think those lessons are important for really every every state. And I mean, I, I see lessons uh, for the United States in its crisis of inequality and water management intersecting with climate and the and, and forest fires in the West. I see implications for the Gulf. I see implications for 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 many different, uh, many different polities, uh, from what we, we can learn by studying uh, the trajectory of Iraq and, and looking for potential, uh, solutions. Uh, listeners can, can read, uh, Zainab's, uh, report on the Century Foundation website. That's tcf.org. Uh, it's the first of a, uh, initiative that a project that we hope is going to last for quite a long time, exploring, uh, governance, conflict, corruption, 
uh, state capacity and its intersection with environmental degradation and climate change, uh, looking to more clearly diagnose the problem, identify human consequences and human drivers, uh, and ultimately to identify viable uh, solutions, adaptations, remediations, uh, re- reversals of, of these disastrous uh uh, phenomena that Zainab has has uh, been telling us about today. Zainab, thank you so much uh, for your work and thanks for coming on Order from Ashes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You've been listening to the Century Foundation's Order from Ashes podcast. Uh, look forward to talking to you next time. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.